Well, I want to wrap up our mini-series uh, this morning on basic Bible study and look at uh, another set of steps, the, the final eight steps or so that we can get through uh, to this morning, because I do want to get into First Thessalonians again to resume where we left off before Christmas, uh, which was uh, in uh, right at the end of chapter four, and I'm anxious to get into chapter five and and uh, dig into that very important section on the the day of the Lord. Some very very important instruction for us that Paul gives to the Thessalonian church. But this morning we'll finish with uh, this mini series on on basic Bible study. And as we begin, I want, to, uh, I want to read from David's words in Psalm 19, uh, where David says this about the Scriptures, about the Word of God and, and its role in our lives, these words that for any true believer should elicit uh, a deep desire to study this Word. Right in the middle of that psalm, David says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are Righteous altogether, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. I think when we look at our lives throughout the week and and consider all the struggles that we face, there are a lot of times when we need restoration, we need wisdom, we need joy, we we look for enlightenment, uh, we look for that which is righteous, we look for that which is worth more than anything else, and so often we, we skip what is so very obvious right in front of us, and it is the Word of God, and we look to other things, seeking those very needs, and meanwhile, in this precious word that all of us have access to so freely, we, we miss the tremendous unparalleled blessings that come through the study of Scripture. And it reminds me a little of the time around the Reformation when, as you know, before the Reformation in the darkness of what we call the medieval ages, uh, people didn't have the Bible, especially in their own language. It was really a possession of the elite, possession of the clergy, the priests and, and the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, and then the reformers came along, and, and you have a man like William Tyndale saying, you know, there's going to come a time when the plowboy will know more than the Pope. And with that whole Reformation came perhaps the, the, one of the greatest movements in human history as the Bible was translated into so many different languages and then put in the hands of of individuals for them to study on their own. And and we're the recipients of that, and and I fear that so often we just are not stewards of that monumental uh, transformation that happened within human history. So as we finish this third part of the series this morning, I I certainly do want to encourage you to evaluate your own study of Scripture and uh, how it impacts your own life, what you do with it, your own disciplines in it, 
and hopefully these, uh, this counsel that I give to you this morning will, will encourage you and provide you with some, some practical helps that you need. Just to review a, a little bit of what we have gone over so far in the first four uh, steps or four pieces of counsel that uh, I gave several weeks ago, these were the, the exhortations as it comes to basic Bible study. Number one, acknowledge your need for truth. Number two, pray for divine assistance. Number three, choose the right translation. And number four, read the whole book. In other words, think in terms in your study of, of dealing with whole books rather than just piecemeal study, which takes you from independent texts in different books all over the place. Rather, focus on, on studying and digesting whole books. Then in part two, we looked at another set of steps or another set of, of, of uh, important principles. Number five was this, consider the book's background. Uh, the books of Scripture were all situational in that they were first given in response to a need for redemption, a need for divine wisdom, and the, 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 the key pathway to properly understanding those words in those books is to consider that original historical context. Number six, identify the book's structure. It's so very helpful in your study to get a picture of the skeleton of the book so that as you're dealing with individual paragraphs, you can always step back for just a moment and remember what part of the book that you're in and and that understanding of the structure will help guide you in the proper handling of the details. And then number seven, when it gets down to even more uh, uh, specific study, as you, as you get down into uh, specific texts and, and want to know those texts better, those perhaps special verses that really stand out, and you, you really want to, to grapple with those at a very deep level, the seventh piece of counsel I gave to you was to study according to paragraphs. Rather than taking individual statements out of context and just dealing with them on their own, it is so very important to consider the, the words, the, the sentences that are, are placed around that particular verse or statement that will help you understand correctly the intention behind it. Now let's begin with the, the, the final six for today. Number eight Compare good translations. Compare good translations. And now again, I, I want to look at that moment in Bible study where now you're not just reading, but you're wanting to go deep into the study of, of particular statements, of particular portions of Scripture. And, and maybe you, you, you want to work through a chapter and you want to give a, a lot of time to a section of Scripture and go as deep as you can with where you're at right now. And a very important and helpful principle here is, is the comparison of good translations. And here's, here's a principle behind that. The faithful study of Scripture benefits from the comparison of, of reliable translations. Now, in the English language, we are the, the recipients of the best translations that have probably in the history of Bible translation have ever been made. And it's not just that we have one or two good translations. We have quite a number of really, really good translations, meaning that we in this generation, as English speakers, are the recipients of, of such blessings that no other generation, no other language has compared to what we have. 
And what this blessing does is it, it means that while I would still encourage many of you to, 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 to start learning a little bit of Greek and Hebrew to help, uh, to help you along a little bit, I just realize as well that that might not be possible, but the blessing is you have the benefit of these different really good translations to help you in, in your study of specific texts. Comparing several good translations is especially helpful for those who cannot understand the original, and finding differences is really key here. Finding differences will pique interest and will highlight areas for further investigation. This is, this is a, a, a helpful discipline to, to, uh, to apply because as you compare these different translations, good translations, it highlights these variations and it's those variations that then pique your interest and say, aha, there's something complex here, there's something profound here, and this means I, I've got to dig deeper, especially in that particular area. Let me give you an example here of, of how this can help. In Romans chapter 8, you have this wonderful text in, in uh, verse 26 of the Spirit's intercession. It's a wonderful passage, Romans 8, is about life in the Spirit, and you have this really amazing statement that Paul gives in verses, uh, in verse 26 and 27 about the Spirit's intercession, which is, a, which is a unique kind of intercession. We know of Christ's intercession, which happens at the right hand of the Father, but we have the Holy Spirit's intercession, which happens from within us. And verses 26 and 27 of Romans 8 says this, in the same way, The Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, perhaps you're going through Romans 8, and you want to dedicate maybe a whole month or two to this most precious chapter. And so what you do is you take the different paragraphs and, and you get some really good translations and you lay them aside, or you lay them beside each other one by one, and then start going through and recognizing what is the same and what is, what is different. And so what I've done here is I've compared three translations, the New American Standard Version, and then you have the English Standard Version, and then the Christian Standard Bible. And in, in putting these different versions side by side of, of verse 26 of Romans 8, it brings up some things for further study. Let's look at the first line. In the same way, the Spirit, or likewise, the Spirit, or in the same way, the Spirit. Now, those statements are pretty similar, so I can move on and, and, and see whether there's any other differences. And then when we get to the second line, we see a little bit of difference here. The New American Standard says, also helps our weakness. The English Standard says, helps us in our weakness. And the Christian Standard says, also joins to help in our weakness. And so I can put those down, and and these are observations. It piques my interest, and it, it, it makes me ask the question, why is there a variation here? In the translations, this is something that I want to look in a a couple of good commentaries that will explain. When I get to the third line, there is another pretty substantial difference here in the translations. Notice what it says. 
Notice what Paul writes, according to the New American, for we do not know how to pray as we should. The English standard says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And the Christian standard as well, because we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And you might think, well, what's the big difference there? Well, there's a difference between how and what. The, the, the question about how to pray deals more with manner. Do we pray standing up? Do we pray kneeling? Do we pray with fasting? Do we pray with hands outstretched? It, it, it is a question, it is an issue that is more connected to, to manner, at least in our English vocabulary, which is what we're looking at right now. Whereas the, the word what has more to do with content. We do not know what to pray. And the emphasis there is on what fills our prayers, our content of our prayers. Now those two things are pretty significant in terms of difference, what or how. And so by looking at these different translations, I can mark this down and say, you know, I've, I've got to look into this deeper. What, what was Paul saying? Is, is anybody going to deal with this? As I look at maybe a couple of good translations, is anybody going to help me understand what the original was, what Paul's intent was? Was it to express the fact that we don't know the, the, the right manner of praying or the right content of our prayer? And just kind of as a, a little uh, answer to that question, I, I do think in this case, the English Standard and the Christian, uh, Christian Standard Bible have it correctly. The emphasis of Paul, the word that he used there is better emphasizing the content of prayer and, and not the manner. What Paul is stressing there is that in the midst of our weakness, it's not that we don't know the manner of praying. So as we go through groanings and trials in the context of Romans 8, that God hasn't given us the detailed picture of what is taking place in the midst of those trials. We just experience it. And that's part of the struggle that Paul expresses there in Romans that, that we don't know what to pray for in the midst of an illness or we don't know what to pray for in the loss of a job. But Paul says, you know what? It's the Spirit who joins in that weakness and he knows what to pray for. There's also another small uh, difference right at the end of this verse, verse 26, where you have the New American Standard say, too deep for words. That is the same way the English Standard Version translates it. And then you have this statement in the Christian Standard Bible, unspoken groanings. And again, that's another significant interpretive issue there in that text. And this comparison of translations is another way to pique your interest, to keep you attentive, and to keep you going deep, and to guard against what I'll come back to in just a moment, is the illusion of mastery. That when you look at the text, you already know what's there. And this kind of comparison will, will challenge you on that illusion and, and, and challenge you to go deeper and consider words and phrases that you hadn't seen before. So in that deeper study of individual paragraphs, as you go deeper, get some good translations, put them side by side, and then start to notice the areas of similarity and the areas of difference. Number nine. A ninth principle here, ask the right questions. This is obviously tied very closely to the previous one, but this is even more specific on the text itself. Ask the right question. The faithful study of Scripture asks 
good questions, not with predetermined answers, but with a sincere hunger for truth. This is so very important that you must come to the text with this, with this hunger uh, that, that, that doesn't give in to our flesh, which, which wants us to always think that we always know it. We always know the answer. Instead, as you're praying through this whole process, you're, you're praying that the Lord would open your eyes so that you might see the wonderful things that God has put there in the text, and, and this requires asking questions. Who, what, why, where, when? These fundamental questions that are so important within the process of learning. In fact, the quality of Bible study often comes down to the quality of the questions that you ask. There's a correlation here. This desire to learn, setting aside of assumptions, of pre-understandings, and, and, and recognizing that you don't know all that's here. And you've got to do, on your part, what it takes to, to set those assumptions aside, acknowledge and be aware of what you don't know, and then seek answers through good inquisition. Nothing in the text should be taken for granted. Just because you see a word doesn't mean you just take it for granted. And no detail should be assumed as, as inconsequential. Remember Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he said that not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away. Now, those jots and tittles are the smallest aspects of the Hebrew language. And Jesus is affirming there that those things matter. They're not inconsequential. They're not just there by happenstance. And so you want to look at both big detail issues and small detail issues, and this happens through good questioning. There's a poem by Rudyard Kipling called, I Keep Six Honest Serving Men. It goes this, like this. He says, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. I send them over land and sea, I send them east and west, but after they have worked for me, I give them all a rest. I let them rest from nine till five, for I am busy then, as well as breakfast, lunch, and tea, for they are hungry men. But different folk have different views. I know a person small. She keeps ten million serving men who get no rest at all. She sends them abroad on her own affairs from the second she opens her eyes, one million hows, two million wares, and seven million whys. Speaking of a little child there, and when you think of it, when you think of development of understanding, where does that take place in its most dynamic and amazing intensity? It happens with little children. And it happens in direct correspondence to all the questions they ask. And I know as parents, you know, you... You get real tired of all those repeated questions over and over and over again. But that's the key to learning. And what this means, as we we look at that and consider, okay, that's how a a person learns, a a young human being learns and develops, we need to take that attitude and, and incorporate it into our own Bible study. Now, how can we how how can we create that good context where you can ask these questions. Well, get, let me give you some advice here. One of the ways to do this is to take the text off of the, the, the page 
of, of your Bible. There's such limited room there where you can, you can write and, 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 and scribble and do all kinds of things in the text. So one of the ways to do this is take the text and, and put it on a, a piece of paper that will allow you to add notes and then devise a system and for every individual, this will be your own way of doing it. Perhaps it's with highlighting or, or different colored pens or pencils. But devise your own system for marking the same kinds of, of details. Whether it's the main verbs in the sentence, whether it's prepositional phrases, whether it's pronouns. Anything that, that can help you dig down into the text and, and start marking it up. And every time you do that, you're, you're doing two things. First of all, you're, you're, you're deepening or, or sharpening, expanding your, your interest, as well as, as you are making your, your memory of the text more durable because you're interacting with it at that very practical level. As well, as you go through this, a very important task here is to capture your key questions and observations. Uh, sometimes, you know, we, we just think, well, we'll remember this all in, in, in our, our head. And, and so we, we don't do any writing even. We just look at the text and, okay, I'm, I'm going to study the, the text right now. But as we all know, we, we forget uh, our, our ideas. In fact, we we forget some of our best ideas, you know, the, the ones that would make us all millionaires. We've all forgotten, right? The, those great creations that would make, you know, life so much better here. Well, we all had those ideas, but we've forgotten. Write them down. So make sure you study with a notepad and, and a pen, and, and as you're looking, write everything down that, that comes to mind. Now, some of it later on, you may scratch out and say, ah, that really doesn't belong here. Th- that always happens. But you don't want to miss those great thoughts that happen as you interact with the text and as the Spirit teaches you, as He enlightens you, there will be some real important gems that come out of that. Capture those thoughts on paper. And again, the key here is to do whatever it takes to increase your inquisitiveness and resist the illusion of mastery. Yeah, the illusion of mastery. I already know that. I've looked at this text before. I know all that's in it. And uh, in pedagogical circles, that, that's, you know, they call that the illusion of mastery. That's the big thing that teachers struggle with with their students. You know, we have seminary students. I teach seminary students. And it's, you know, I, I've sat in their seats before. And, and, and now from the different side, I, I, I recognize that. You know, the illusion of mastery. Well, I already know that. Do you? Really? And that spills over into all kinds of Bible study, and the way to tackle that is, is to do this deeper, practical Bible study. A few more uh, pieces of counsel here. Uh, something that can be very helpful with this is, is a, a journaling Bible can be helpful. They publish Bibles with nice large margins on the sides, and, and that can be the place where you'll do your, your regular reading of Scripture. And even if in that regular reading of Scripture you're not going deep, deep, deep down into every sentence or every paragraph, nonetheless, as you read, there are going to be thoughts, there are going to be observations and questions that you have, maybe even a, a cross-reference that will come to mind. 
put it down on the page, and all of that is helping you to study and making your knowledge of the text more durable for those times when you need that truth to apply in life. Another, uh, a little bit more of an expensive option here is something called a loose-leaf Bible. Now, these are not cheap. Uh, I think they run around $80 to $100, but you can get the whole Bible, uh, some versions anyway, in a loose-leaf Bible, and there's, there is a significant amount of space around the, the text on the page for you to do all of your, the marking that you want to do in it. And sometimes it's a lot better for this because, you know, when, when you want to have your Bible maybe compact, you can bring it along when you go to different places. This is a pretty heavy, uh, a heavy Bible, and, uh, but at the same time, it, it's going to allow you to put it out there on your desk and to make all the, the different uh, kind of markings that you need. Number 10, resist reading between the lines. Resist reading between the lines. The faithful study of Scripture focuses on what is written and not what is absent. And this is a, an important qualification to our preceding point because curiosity is, is obviously so very essential. You want to ask all kinds of questions, and inevitably those questions will take you to the white spaces. Now, the, to ask the question is certainly not harmful at all. Uh, you want to ask as many questions as you possibly can that are related to the text. Some of those will hit the target, some of those will be off, and you'll have to discard those because God just hasn't given an answer, and, and that's okay. But what can happen in this curiosity is that readers can become more curious of what isn't written than what is. This is, this is not a danger that is far from us. This is actually quite common and, and quite close, and perhaps you have interacted with those, and maybe even at a Bible study, or perhaps in, in some other setting where someone has grabbed onto some idea, and, and they're excited about it, and they want to promote it, and you'll say, well, what were you studying? And they'll talk about a text, but you'll, you'll look at the text and say, I don't see that here, and, and there'll be some kind of reading behind the lines that, that, that allows this person to go unorthodox, away from the truth, and can be very, very damaging. In fact, I'll say this, reading between the lines is as dangerous as taking a text out of context. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, the Lord makes it very clear when through Moses, he says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things. Those are the things that God has not spoken. There are truths that we wish we knew. There's knowledge that we wish we had. But God has not spoken it, and, and, and Moses makes it very clear. Those secret things, the things not written in this book, belong to the Lord. No matter what you try to do, you will never access them. But then, Moses says, the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says this, Now these things, brethren... I have figuratively, figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for, for your sakes. He's dealing there with some issues of strife in the church, and there's a larger context there. But then he says this, So that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against another. We are not to exceed what is written. Don't step across the line. You 
must train yourself to have your, your hunger for what is written and not be distracted by what is not. John Kelvin, in a statement in the Institutes, speaks of this kind of speculative study of Scripture when he says this, quote, Let us remember here, as in all religious doctrine, that we ought to hold to one rule of modesty and sobriety, not to speak or guess or even seek to know concerning obscure matters anything except what has been imparted to us by God's word. For this reason, if we would be duly wise, we must leave those empty speculations which idle men have taught apart from God's word concerning the nature, orders, and number of angels. For example, he gives that as an example. You know, how many angels are there, and how many can dance on the head of a needle? And, and that becomes the, the major focus about, um, among these, these people discussing Scripture. He goes on and says this, I know that many persons more greedily seize upon and take more delight in them than in such things as have been put to daily use. But if we are not ashamed of being Christ's disciples, let us not be ashamed to follow that method which he has prescribed. Thus it will come to pass that content with his teaching, we shall not only abandon, but also abhor those utterly empty speculations from which he calls us back. Number 11, consult the best commentaries. Consult the best commentaries. Now, the principle here is that the faithful study of Scripture appreciates the, the efforts of gifted pastors and teachers throughout history and incorporates the, the fruit of their labors. Now, some will have this idea, and I'm going to read a quote uh, in, in just a moment here from... Uh, um, we'll, we'll get to it in just a moment. But some have this idea that, you know, if, if we're really doing Bible study, it just means the Bible and me. And certainly that's the priority. You, you don't go about just studying a commentary or studying a sermon transcript. It's, it's about your study of Scripture, that which men's lives have been taken over their, uh, their desire to translate it and put it into the hands of men. No, and instead we must realize that part of the enlightenment process, a tool that the Holy Spirit uses as he teaches us, will be the, 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 the products, the, the works of gifted pastor teachers who have labored over Scripture and, and have left us with their writings, their commentaries, and their sermons. So what are some of the commentaries that you can use as you go through your study, whether that is just general reading and you will refer from time to time to uh, perhaps some commentary on a certain section that may not immediately uh, hit home or make sense, or perhaps it's in that deeper study of a particular passage and, and you want to get down deep, as, as deep as you can go, key, key resources will be things like study Bible notes. Those are just very, very simple kinds of commentaries, but they're very, very concise. And in those study notes, you will, you'll find a brief explanation as well as some very helpful cross-references and so on. These resources can also be sermons. 
Again, let's say you're studying Romans chapter 8. So how can you use someone else's sermon to help you dig deeper into that? Well, you can listen to a sermon by our, or a series of sermons by our own Pastor John. Uh, one of the things that I'll often do is, is listen to S. Lewis Johnson. He's got preaching through many portions of the New Testament. And, and as I'm working through a text, I'll, I'll listen to, to a sermon from someone like him. There are many good sermons out there. You know some of those good preachers, and as you're studying these different sections of Scripture, find their sermons. Listen to them. This is part of the process. Get recommendations about commentaries from trusted teachers. Avoid reliance just on one single author all the time. We as, as pastors and teachers, we're fallible. And, and we ourselves are in the process of, of growing We don't see everything that's there. We don't have absolute perfect knowledge. Only the scripture is perfect. And so you want to make sure that you're you're looking to several sources as you grow in your understanding of, of specific texts. And use these resources, these study Bible notes, these sermons, these commentaries to, to deepen your understanding, to correct. At times, you'll be on a, a on a certain tangent. And you're convinced that this is what the text means, but one of these resources will come along, or a couple of these resources will come along and, and correct some kind of wrong direction you have in, in your thinking. Or they'll affirm it and say, you're, you are right on track. And that affirmation then gives you that, that confidence you need to move not just into deeper understanding, but also into faithful application. As we think of the role of these Uh, these resources, Ephesians 4 immediately comes to mind, verses 11 to 13. And God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4 is that, yes, even though we can have the Word of God in our own, in our own hands and, and we can hear the Word of God with our own ears, even though we're members of a priesthood of all believers, and even though the Scripture is in itself fundamentally clear, nonetheless, God's means for deepening the church's understanding of Scripture and its application in life, one of those means is going to be pastors and, and teachers. Charles Spurgeon said it this way in a, in a book called Words of Counsel for Christian Workers. He says this, Some, under pretense of being taught of the Spirit of God, refuse to be instructed by books or by living men. This is no honoring of the Spirit of God. It is disrespect for Him. For if He gives to some of His servants more light than to others, and it is clear He does, then they are bound to give that light to others and to use it for the good of the church. But if the other part of the church refuses to receive that light, to what end did the Spirit of God give it? This would imply that there is a mistake somewhere in the economy of God's gifts and graces, which is managed by the Holy Spirit. Now this transitions smoothly into our next Point number 12, be accountable to others. In your study of Scripture, 
be accountable to others. The faithful study of Scripture takes place in the context of the local church. This is so very important. We do affirm that the Scripture is clear enough to be interpreted by every believer. This was the passion, the conviction of men like William Tyndale being willing to sacrifice their lives for the translation of Scripture so that it would be available in the mother tongue of the people around them to be in their their hands because there was this conviction that Scripture is clear. There is no distinction between clergy and laity, which is such a profound uh, or a predominant idea within Roman Catholicism. That distinction of classes of Christians doesn't exist. There's a priesthood of all believers. The scriptures are fundamentally clear and God has given his spirit equally to all who are in Christ. That is what, that, that, that was at the heart of the, the uh, reformers' convictions and what drove that, that amazing moment in, in history. However, when the reformers rejected the idea that there is just one in the church who has the Holy Spirit, so as to interpret Scripture. There's just one interpreter over and for the church, that in Roman Catholic thinking was the Pope. The rejection of that that heresy does not then imply that any interpretation of Scripture is correct, that all that matters is that you have a whole bunch of individuals using the Bible for themselves. And as long as they're using the Bible, it's all correct. That is, that is not the appropriate conclusion that we draw from the priesthood of all believers, the clarity of Scripture, and the gift of the Spirit to all believers equally. There is a need to interpret and study Scripture together with the local church. This is one of the primary blessings of the local church. We need each other. We need each other. And, and why? Well, we, we, we are ignorant. We, we have ignorance in certain areas, and others can help us with that ignorance. For some, it's inadequate study methods. It, it's it's uh, not enough time in the scriptures, or perhaps it's uh, an incorrect hermeneutic. It's, it's, they're, they're trying to understand the scripture, but they're employing some incorrect principles. For others, and we know this even ourselves, it'll be the influence of our flesh, sinful bias that is, that is keeping us from a fuller understanding of what the author placed in his text. We have a bias. Something is in our, in our, in our life, and we don't want to come to terms with it, and, and so we'll misconstrue Scripture. All of those reasons and, and more necessitate the involvement of other believers, especially elders, but other believers. Acts chapter 17 says this, as, as we remember the Thessalonians, remember Paul had been in Thessalonica and had been thrown out of the city eventually, primarily because of the, the problems instigated by the Jews in Thessalonica. And so Paul and Silas uh, travel over to Berea, and we read this from the pen of Luke. He says, the brethren immediately, 
the brethren of Thessalonica, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now those, these Jewish uh, listeners in the synagogue there were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. The, the idea here is, is of this, this group within that synagogue who are meeting together, and they're doing so, as, as we see daily together, hearing the preaching of the Apostle Paul about the fulfillment of these promises concerning the Christ, the Messiah, these promises fulfilled in the historical person of Jesus. And so they're hearing Paul's preaching saying these things have been fulfilled. This is who Jesus is. And they'd go back to those Old Testament texts, which they had in their scrolls there in the synagogue and, and examining it together. We see the, the, the work of, of, of that corporate effort of God-fearing individuals, saints, seeking to understand the scriptures. Plummer says this, reading the Bible with fellow believers helps us to gain insights that we would otherwise miss. Also, our brothers and sisters can guard us from straying into false interpretations and misapplications. And by the way, this is what is so helpful about the Bible studies, is that as you get together uh, and have that opportunity for interaction, for dialogue, this is where a lot of the correction can take place. As other believers say, you know what, you, you, you didn't understand the text correctly here. This is what Paul means. This is what Moses means. And, and, and discuss it together and, and be corrected or be affirmed that you're on the right track. Finally, number 13, obey what the text teaches Obey what the text teaches. The faithful study of Scripture must be followed by the faithful application of its message. Now, faithful application, of course, is dependent upon faithful interpretation. You're not going to have faithful obedience from incorrect interpretations. And so it only highlights the importance of solid Bible study. You want to know what the text actually says correctly. You want to know it correctly so that then you can live it correctly. If you know it incorrectly, you will live it incorrectly. So accurate interpretation is based upon that accurate interpretation. And, and as you go through all these, these efforts to study correctly, you're bathing then the interpretive results in prayerful obedience to the glory of God. You're praying as you go through it, Lord, I, I, I want to understand it, but I realize that mere understanding is not the end goal. The end goal is that this truth would have full authority over my life to change me wherever change is needed, to change my attitude, my words, to change my actions, so that your word would rule my life, so that I would reflect your glory, so that I would be conformed to the image of your son, that perfect man. That's the ultimate goal of Bible study. As Roy Zuck has said, heart appropriation, not merely head appreciation or apprehension, is the true goal of Bible study. James 1, 22 to 25 says this, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks into, at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Now, there's a series of questions I have here. I won't go through all of these. You can download them later off the website, but they're a helpful set of questions that uh, can guide you in that personal uh, application of Scripture. Some texts are not as immediately apparent in terms of their authority over our practical living as other texts are, but these questions can can help us in uh, finding the right applications. Well, in drawing it to a close, let me summarize by listing these 13 principles. One, acknowledge your need for truth. Number two, pray for divine assistance. Number three, choose the right translation. Four, read the whole book. Five, consider the book's background. Six, identify the book's structure. Seven, study according to paragraphs. And then today we looked at number eight, compare good translations. Nine, ask the right questions. Ten, Resist reading between the lines. 11, consult the best commentaries. 12, be accountable to others. And number 13, obey what the text teaches. Some of you may be interested in doing a little bit more study on this. I want to recommend three, uh, three books that would be helpful for everyone in this room. doesn't matter where you're at. These are all books that uh, you would be able to, uh, to work through I'd recommend starting with Richard Mayhew's book, How to Study the Bible. Uh, And then from there, you can look at Howard Hendricks and William Hendricks' book, Living by the Book. I remember going through that as a young Christian, and it was immensely helpful to me. And then a more recent one, a little bit more advanced from these other two, is Scott Duvall and Daniel Hayes' book, Grasping God's Word. Well, with that, let's look to the Lord. Let's ask Him that uh, we would not just be hearers of this, but doers as well. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word and, and acknowledge and confess to you that so often, because we have so many Bibles around the home and it's so easily accessible, that sometimes that familiarity leads to contempt. We treat it as we shouldn't. We treat it as just a a religious book to carry around on certain days of the week or as even sometimes some kind of of get-out-of-jail card that we can look to when we have a problem that will give us some kind of help when we we want release. But as David stated... This word is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. By it we are warned, and in keeping it there is great reward. I pray that for everyone here, for all of us, that this year would be a year of deeper Bible study, a year that would, would come to that all of us would come to a greater understanding of this word than ever before, that our love for the, the text would would grow greatly 
and that this word would come to have true authority, binding authority over every aspect, every component of our lives. And we pray this knowing that it will benefit us, but ultimately we pray that in that you would be glorified as we who come to reflect the scriptures will come to reflect your own glory. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.